2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're doing the Horned Helm. That's
1: right. This is going to be one of our, essentially, one of our invention-themed episodes. But uh, I've decided, you know, we really need to come back to armor, and the best place to start with armor is really the helmet. Uh, I think the helmet is is one of these wonderful things to consider because, on the one hand, there is the more sort of combat centric and you know, medieval uh, and even fantasy idea of a helmet or sci-fi helmets like you can get very fantastic with the concept. But at a very basic level, I feel like we all have some experience wearing a helmet, taking this bit of artificial exoskeleton, slipping it over our own skull and then
0: enjoying its protection. Do you remember the scene in Coneheads, where uh, it, it is revealed that Dan Aykroyd's Conehead Beldar enjoys driving a motorcycle, but he is <laughs> not a fan of helmet laws. No, I don't remember this. Does he have a, a weird helmet or he just he can't wear human helmets? Uh, I would imagine that's the source of his frustration, because it seems like Beldar is actually normally pretty much a rule follower. But uh, but yeah, he doesn't like the helmets. And I think it's probably because he has to get one custom made.
1: Oh, man, I haven't seen that in forever. But I do remember it had a really fun stop motion monster towards the end.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beldar's got to fight one with his golf skills. Uh, <laughs> it, it also has a great line that for some reason, is is just used for all occasions around our house, which is, your cone is too young!
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't remember if they wore helmets in that at all, like the, the more like space-centric uh, cone heads, but I feel like there was some sort of a horned crown that one of them wore. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so one of the we're going to be discussing helmets in general but but one thing that we're also going to discuss here is the idea of the horned helm a helmet with horns on it it's it's an ancient motif in human civilization and it ties into some of our earliest ceremonial practices and models of imaginative thinking there's also just something so elegant about the idea a thing that may be worn upon the head and in doing so transforms the individual from a mere human into something symbolically different a, a hybrid of human and beast channeling the archaic, chaotic gods of the hunt.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's therianthropy. It's what you see uh, in those ancient cave paintings that's so exciting when you start to see the, the, the human and the animal forms joined together, suggesting fantastical thinking. It's clearly there in the horned helmet as well. Um, and, and and so when you see these ancient motifs, like uh, one example that I was looking at before we came in here today was uh, – Robert, are you familiar with the the Sutton Hoo helmet? Oh, yes. Yes. The Sutton Hoo helmet. I had to pull up a picture
1: of it. But I this is one of these that I remember from an early age seeing perhaps on the cover of a National Geographic. But it was certainly featured in some
0: sort of uh, uh, historical book that I uh, had access to as a kid. Yeah, it's just spectacularly creepy with these hollow eyes, the way the mustache is rendered on the, the plate of the face covering. Uh, I think it also had a leather component when it was actually worn, but it's this decorated Anglo-Saxon helmet from, I think it was from the seventh century. Uh, it was buried in this, uh, in this ship burial somewhere in East Anglia. And I've actually seen this up close and, and there, there are replicas of it that are, Really cool because they, they reproduce the artwork that would have been originally visible on the sides and all the – it's got all these panels over it. Basically, it's a helmet covered with like comic strips. And uh, in all the little panels, there are scenes depicted and one of them shows these figures, like human-shaped figures with horns apparently wearing some kind of horned helmet. Oh, wow. So evidence of horned
1: helmets on a helmet. Yes. That's wonderful. Yes.
0: But it doesn't necessarily show the, the the characters wearing horned helmets, say, going into battle. It appears to have more kind of a ritual or religious significance surrounding the horns. Yeah,
1: and, and this seems to be basically underlying the, the earliest versions of, of this. You know, uh, horned helmets go back thousands of years, as far back as uh, 12th century BCE. Uh, we see this in Cyprus, Bronze Age Europe. Uh, and uh, generally, the idea is that, yeah, this probably has its origins in, in again, symbolic think- thinking and ritual and the idea that you're transforming, you're becoming something else, which, of course, has a role in combat as well and a role in intimidation, a sort of role in the basic uh, um, uh, behavior of making yourself look larger than you are. Um, sure, but, uh, but then there's also this uh, imaginative side to it. There is this ritual aspect
0: of mel- melding man and beast. The symbolic or meaningful aspects of the horns, as opposed to having some kind of, like, combat purpose, that really comes through uh, in some of the Japanese traditions you see, where, like, they're, they're the kabuto, the, the, the Japanese warrior helmets, where I believe a, a number of these helmets do actually have horns on them, sometimes deer antlers or, or cattle horns, but mm-hmm. these would be linked to, uh, like, a like a leadership class, that they would be sort of a sign that you were a commander. Yeah, and we we definitely see this in in the early history of helmets as well,
1: uh, which we'll get into. But in terms of just uh, the idea of a horned helm, obviously, we have a modern connotation with Vikings. Uh, This is my understanding. I know you're going to get into this more. I think it's largely a 19th century association, but uh, there are plenty of other warriors uh, and and symbolic warriors uh, that actually wore horned helms in Europe. And this included Bronze Age Danes, medieval Germanic warriors, And then, of course, uh, we already mentioned Japanese samurai, uh, the armored warriors of Japan. Uh, And one also sees horns and horn-like crinulations as a common feature of crowns, which, of course, are not really about protecting the head. It's more like let's take the thing, the symbolic thing a helmet can do and just not worry about any of the protective
0: aspects to a certain extent. Yeah, totally. So to come back to the fact that the Vikings didn't actually wear horns, I think this – at this point, that's sort of one of those false facts that everybody knows that everybody knows at this point. You know, mm-hmm. like most people have heard, yeah, the Vikings didn't actually wear horned helmets. Uh, but the fact about where this Viking horn association comes from is pretty interesting and it's kind of surprising. There's a great paper about this by a Yale linguistics professor named Roberta Frank, published in the year 2000, and it's called The Invention of the Viking Horned Helmet. And according to Frank, the origin of this misunderstanding that Viking warriors would wear horned helmets into battle... That lies primarily with a late 19th century artist and costume designer named Carl Emil Dipler. So Dipler was a German artist and, and was in charge of designing costumes for an 1876 Bayreuth production of Wagner's musical epic, Der Ring des Nibelungen, the Ring of Nibelung, which is a is a series of works. Uh, I think there's four different sort of phases in this cycle by Wagner and it takes a lot of classic Norse mythology, but it sort of smashes it together with ideas about German national history and all these Germanic flavors. And one of these conflations was in Derpler's costume. So Derpler gave the gave several characters horned helmets, and this sparked the popular association between Vikings, who would have been roving Scandinavian warriors between something like the 8th and the 11th century, and then this idea of horned helms, which would have actually been worn by some people, maybe some some ancient Germanic peoples, but not by the Vikings – but anyway, the, the spark of this association caught on, and there were other instances here and there, but within about 20 years, it had become much more pervasive. Uh, Roberta Frank writes, quote, During the 1890s, the horned, helmeted Viking changed from a series of widely scattered occurrences into a kind of weather. Mass-produced children's books were an ideal medium for imprinting the image on the popular imagination. So it becomes a staple of children's books, and once it's in children's, media. You know, it's just going to be everywhere. Right. You're
1: just inundated at such a young age that even when you inevitably reach that point where you learn, again, the idea that everybody knows the Vikings didn't have horns, it's almost too late because that motif is just burned into your brain. Uh, So you you end up carrying like both at the same time uh, contradictorily.
0: Yeah, that's right. And another thing that I thought was interesting, this uh, section was actually highlighted in a Vox piece I was reading, but this is also from Roberta Frank's article. Uh, She notes that the idea of the Viking Age as a distinct period in European history is also actually a late 19th century invention. Uh, Frank writes, quote, Until the Viking Age was invented, there was no horned helmeted Viking, and vice versa. The two go together like Easter and Bonnet. A Viking Age is first mentioned in 1873 in two independent Danish and Swedish articles. The period gets its first monumental write up in Johannes Steenstrup's four volume Normanern, published between 1876 and 1882. Perhaps only an expansionist empire-building era could have thought up an age that began with naval attacks on foreign shores and ended when these attacks ceased.
1: <laughs>
0: so, yes, to clarify, there have been decorative horned helms in history, but the Scandinavian warriors of the roughly 8th to 11th century generally did not wear helmets like this, uh, and and this idea mostly comes from the late 19th century. Another thing that I thought was kind of funny, what associations do you get from the idea of a horned helmet? What does that suggest about the person wearing it? Well, it instantly,
1: and part of this, I think, has to do with the Viking motif becoming such a central part of... Of fantasy imagery as well, you know, sort of friends of uh, Frazetta um, uh, art and so forth, is the idea that this is what a barbarian wears on their head. This is, it, it symbolizes a a barbaric or primal
0: state of being. Uh, exactly right. I mean, that's the same way I feel. Like, Horned Helmet's at a gut level signify a kind of uncivilized brutality, like a therianthropy mindset where, you know, in battle, I am no longer a human. I am a charging bull. I am a beast without reason. And in light of that, I wanted to read a passage that Roberta Frank quotes from a novel by the historian Alfred Dugan. This is from uh, the King of Athelney. It's about Alfred the Great, who was king of the Anglo-Saxons in the ninth century. And I think this part is from Alfred's perspective. Quote, On his head was one of those impractical but imposing helmets, embellished with spreading ox horns, which among the heathen were a badge of grandeur. That was a comforting sight, implying that the pirates expected fair play and no bloodshed. No sensible warrior would risk his life under a helmet which could be knocked flying by a single stroke. <laughs> <laughs> that is insightful. Very good point. And it, it really underlines, too – some of the forces
1: we're gonna be discussing in, in in this episode about you know, early and important um, uh, uh, helmet designs is that you know you have you have the the, the need to protect the head. You have this other uh, aesthetic principle coming into play where you want to to look cool in the helmet or look imposing or signal something about your status. But at the same time, you need to be able to fight in this thing. You need you don't need horns that can uh, as as the the author states here uh, that'll allow your helmet to be just taken off or just spun around violently on your head uh, due to uh, essentially a miss uh, by the opponent. You know, you you need something that is going to have a certain
0: level of of comfort uh, as well as durability. Yeah, you don't want to attach levers to your armor where it can just easily be wrenched off of you, right? Ideally, your armor would be really tough and would be as, like, flat and close to your body as possible so that it stays put and doesn't get dislodged. Yeah. Um, And certainly when you start start looking at different helmets even those that
1: that do have some sort of a horn or spike motif the ones that see more use so while they can certainly be ornate, you often see something that is a little smaller in stature. Uh, for instance, for, for single horns and spikes, we see plenty of examples of this, where the top of the helmet tapers into a, a, a spike of some sort. There are the, um, the, the Kulakud helms of Persia, and then you also have the, the famous uh, picklehaba helms that are typically associated with the Prussian and German militaries of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and you'll, of course, occasionally see them in biker movies as well.
0: Oh yeah! If you look at a lot of Allied propaganda during the World War One era, it would often depict the German enemy with a with a, a pickle halber, like a you know a spear on the top of its helmet.
1: Yeah. Uh, now, one of the interesting things, of course, is the spear is, has no real offensive purpose. You know, it, you're not going to like, uh, uh, you know, bend over and then run into combat and try and stab people <laughs> with the top of your head. But there is a fun scene. I, I, I don't know if it has any even remotely, uh, you know, historic uh, counterpart, uh, but there was a 1971 film written and directed by James Clavell of um, Shogun and uh, The Fly fame, and and uh, it's titled The Last Valley. And there's a scene in it in which Michael Caine's character, who wears one of these helmets, uh, has casually taken it off for some sort of conversation and then
0: uh, uses it to murder the other individual by stabbing them in the chest with it. And then is it like the purloined letter, like they never know to look for the murder weapon on top of his head? Oh, I mean, he does it in front of numerous people. So oh, okay. it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's not so much a murder <laughs> mystery
1: as more of a, uh, uh, I, you know, I don't think it's completely governed by the rules of of war is kind of a shady act uh but essentially like he and his bunch if i remember correctly they're they're essentially defecting they find this this valley that's untouched by the wars ravaging the countrysides around them and they're like well hell we're just going to stay here uh but i need to kill this
0: guy first with my helmet you never trust a michael kane <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, we already touched on some of the the, the fantasy elements here, but I know that uh, I, I grew up with a lot of uh, Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000 imagery uh, in my head. And they always had these really horned up chaos warriors where they had really almost like this uh, exaggerated Viking helm motif. Uh, sometimes the horns met in the middle and kind of formed a ring, but other times they were just straight up horns. Um, elsewhere in our like current popular culture, you, you see a lot of cool horns. Uh, for instance, uh, Marvel's version of Loki often dresses up with a helm that has some just ridiculous uh, uh, horns spiraling out of the top of it. Uh, if you watch The Mandalorian, there's a, actually a horned uh, Mandalorian uh, that pops up in that show, uh, a character uh, called the Armorer. And then, uh, and then I was also thinking, as long as we're talking about Disney, there's um, Sleeping Beauty. You have uh, Maleficent who uh, has these horns that are either I'm, – I'm not – I was never entirely clear if those were part of her body or mm. just part of her uh, fantastic
0: wardrobe. You know, I got to say I've always been partial to Tim the Enchanter from Monty Python and the oh, Holy Grail with, of course. His, with his ram's horns, which I, I don't recall exactly, but it looks almost like they're more attached to like a hood than a helmet.
1: I guess that's the thing when you get into a magic user, right? Like what – where does the the magical individual end and the magical costume begin? You're not entirely certain.
0: Yeah, and this would bring us back to the idea of uh, somebody with a a kind of shamanic stature, right? He's supposed to have – it suggests a a hybrid nature, animal-human power, that kind of thing.
1: Now, in terms of just sort of the transformative aspects of the helmet itself, we, of course, see plenty of examples of this in in our media. Um, you know, it goes everything from Darth Vader's helmet being such an iconic example of this to so many different slasher villains in horror. You know, they have some sort of signature mask or masks that they wear. And I was thinking... As cool as all those various masks are, I can't think of a horned example of that, you know, an idea of like some sort of a slasher murderer character who has a helmet or a mask that
0: incorporates horns. Yeah, I couldn't think of one either, though I I do think a, a good horned monster... It would be wonderful, and is underused in cinema. I, I've long maintained. I think we've actually talked about this before that the Minotaur is one of the most underrealized mm-hmm. monsters in modern cinema. The Minotaur should be so terrifying if rendered with the proper care, the care it deserves. But you know, I strain to think of good Minotaurs in modern movies.
1: Yeah, I mean there there have been some there have been some good ones in the past few decades, but. Yeah, there's nothing recently. Uh, we'll have to get into this when we inevitably come back and do a, an episode on the Minotaur. Um You know, I was looking, I was trying to think, though, about horror film masks. And there is a very Minotaur-esque looking mask that shows up apparently in one of the Purge films. So it's a Purge mask with horns. But having not actually seen any of these movies, I don't know if this is a major Purger or a marginal Purger. (laughs) It's just a background (laughs) Purger. I'm not really sure how this thing works. But it's a cool looking,
0: essentially a Minotaur mask. I'm thinking one of these days in the in the Purge movies, they're just going to get down to like the the Marie Kondo kind of level where it, it's more about like possessions, things you don't need than than humans. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I I have no idea how. Um how detailed they get in their world building in the show. I think they did a TV series, which I hope gets into like white collar purge crimes and so forth. I mean, there's so many dimensions to that. Like what are the the full rules here? And is it just murders legal or like other crimes as well?
0: I know the movies must address this, but, uh, but I don't think I'm going to find out.
1: Yeah, well, listeners will have to let us know.
0: You watch it so we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you think about the helmet not as a decoration. I mean, most of what we've been talking about is idea uh, decoration and trying to create visual significance. When you think about the helmet as a practical invention, I love that it's pretty much just creating a second skull. You've already got a skull. It's a yeah. hard casing that covers the brain. And then some people got the idea of, what if I just did another one on top?
1: Yeah. I, I guess you could basically think of it this way. In terms of... Human on human violence, like the skull does a pretty good job protecting against, um, you know, fists and kicks and all, not to say that it can't be fractured in those uh, encounters as well. But once you start involving tools, um, offensive tools, like it is the it is such an elegant um, defensive tool to develop as well. Like, okay, if you're going to upgrade your strikes with uh, pieces of bone and, uh, and and, you know, stones and so forth, then. I want to have something around my head that at least cushions the blow, if, if, if not shields me uh, from, from some of the, the more direct violence that is inherent in your attack.
0: Yeah, that actually highlights that there are a couple of different physics issues going on when you're creating a helmet, right? One of them is you want to prevent like just direct injury to the t- outer tissues, like to the mm. skin and the the bone of your skull, because obviously you don't want fractures in your skull. But another thing is, even if nothing would break through, you also want to provide a certain amount of padding that will uh, slow the rate of acceleration caused by jostling of the head in different directions. You know, when you get hit in the head a lot of what can hurt you is if your brain suddenly sloshes too fast against the inside of your skull from the acceleration of the blow so like a football helmet works because it pads that out it slows it down
1: yeah so hopefully this provides a a good a good initial overview of what helmets are and some of the, the different roles they play but this leads to the most obvious question Is this just a human thing? Is this pure human technology or do we, because essentially it is tool use, do we see this sort of tool use in other uh, animals out there? Well, we're going to answer that question after we come back. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like?
2: Zumo Play.
0: All right, we're back. So we're asking the question: Hey, do any animals wear helmets?
1: Okay, so essentially no. um I mean, there are some caveats. I guess it it, it basically comes down to how far are you willing to to stretch the idea of a, of a helmet. So, for sure. instance, hermit crabs. Obviously, they're they're acquiring a shell from another organism and using them as additional armor over their own exoskeleton. And, um, you know, they're not wearing it on their head, but then that doesn't make sense. Why would they wear just something over their head? They're going to cover their whole body.
0: It, it's uh, more like a mineral diaper. <laughs>
1: I guess, yeah, a mineral diaper. Uh, it, also, there are examples of... Um, of, of octopi using you know coconut husk that sort of thing, but again, uh, I don't know if I'd really qualify that as a helmet, as like as specifically the shielding of one's skull uh, of one he- one's head of one's brain with
0: some sort of additional layering. I think a thing we're also going to run into with with this question about animals is. Um how external is the the head covering originally? Because yeah. there there are lots, lots of animals, obviously, that have natural shielding of the head that's just part of their body. And then you have the hermit crab, which, of course, it's not on the head, but it, like, picks up something from the environment and uses that as armor. And then you've got some stuff that's going to be kind of in between those two extremes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and certainly, again, you have plenty of, of creatures that have some, fabulous uh, armor uh, around the head, uh, but it's not something that they have acquired or created. Um, yeah, and you also have these um, activities that seem tantalizingly close to, uh, if not helmet wearing, then at least hat technology uh, gorillas <laughs> certainly have been observed to put straw on their bodies and on their head uh, if, at, i mean i've seen this before at the zoo uh, multiple times it's always amusing it's you know oh the gorilla put put some straw in its head now it's walking around but this seems at best aligned with keeping sun or rain off but i've also seen it discussed in terms of uh, a quote straw wave uh, which uh, I, I take to mean that it's more about gesticulating and play versus doing anything uh, with the straw that is actually functional mm-hmm. um at any rate I, i'm not sure i would qualify it as is hat wearing
0: yeah if you qualified that then you might also want to qualify well as uh, so let's say elephants often would cover the tops of their heads or backs with mud in yeah. order to, to shield themselves in various ways would that count as a hat i don't really think so
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, if you walk from a human standpoint, like if a human walked into a, a fine restaurant with their their bald head covered in mud, no one would say, "I'm sorry, you have to take your hat off inside." <laughs> so, uh, but we're but we're getting into silly territory here because I do have at least one example of an animal, actually a few different uh, species, that do wear something like a helmet or a hat. And we ultimately have to to cheat a little bit to, to, to count this as well. But we actually end up hitting on another favorite trend of mine in fictional helmets, and that is skeletal helms. Oh, yeah. Uh, so like Rattle Shirt in A Song of Ice and Fire or the, uh, what is it, General K.L. or Kale from uh, the movie Willow. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, a bone helmet, sure. So obviously that's cool, wearing a larger skull over your own skull is some sort of a helmet. But what if you... Uh, And then likewise, if you wore a skull as a hat, that would be kind of goth and weird, right? But what if you didn't simply wear a skull on your head? Uh, What if you wore your own skull as a helmet? And heck, what if you wore a stack of skulls uh, on top of your head as this sort of weird tapering hat?
0: Then I'd say you are a fashion innovator. (laughs) I mean, I, I have never seen someone with a stack of their own skulls as a hat.
1: But now, now I must see it. Uh, but y- you would you'd be a Johnny Come Lately because uh, the fashion world uh, is far behind the natural world on this one. Because this is roughly what we see with the caterpillar of the moth Raba Luggins, aka the Mad Caterpillar, <laughs> aka the Gum Leaf Skeletonizer. Uh, that that last nickname is due to the way it ravages eucalyptus leaves, uh, and nothing to do with its its hat, as we're going to discuss. But um, The Raba Luggins is native to Australia and New Zealand, and the key here is its molting, which Luggins does 13 times during its caterpillar stage, regularly shedding its exoskeleton as it grows. Now... Well, I think we're all familiar with this sort of molting, uh, the idea of leaving behind uh, you know, this shell of your former exoskeleton. Uh, you see this in, you know, in numerous species. But what Uraba does is something a little bit interesting. It keeps the exoskeleton head that it just sized out of, and it remains atop its current head. And then when it molts again... Well, it does the same thing uh, so that it's wearing an exoskeleton of its head like a hat that in turn has a smaller exoskeleton helm on top of it. And this keeps going and going in a very susian fashion so that the heads taper off in a stack atop the creature's own head.
0: Yeah. So to picture this, I mean, you should look it up if you can, but if you can't, Remember, again, the purpose of molting is to allow an animal with an exoskeleton to grow bigger. So each previous exoskeleton was smaller than the current animal. So the heads just keep getting smaller as they go up. It's like a stack of beads of diminishing size with this tiny original head perched on top. It's like if you made uh, a snowman (laughs) out of... uh...
1: Exoskeleton heads of a caterpillar, uh-huh. and they're on top of the head of a caterpillar. It's really weird. You, I highly recommend people look up uh, a picture of this. It is U uh, R A B A L U G E N S. Well worth the price of a Google search. Yeah, and uh, and scientists generally refer to this as head capsule stacking. And the interesting thing is that you might look at it and you think, well, this is weird, this is a weird quirk, but it's, it's not a quirk. It, it seems to play a role in the caterpillar's survival. Now, one of our favorite science writers, uh, Ed Yong, wrote about uh, this species back in 2016 for National Geographic. And he pointed out that back in 1980, Australian entomologist Noel McFarland merely speculated that it might serve these already large, bristly caterpillars by serving as a head-tail decoy for hungry birds. So a bird swoops in, sees, oh, there's something tasty. I'm going to try and snatch it away. But instead of snatching uh, onto its head or tail, it just
0: takes off some crunchy exoskeleton. So in a way, this would be a form of autotomy. So it would be like when a lizard that is being attacked by a predator can detach its own tail sort of as as a consolation prize to the predator, allowing the rest of the lizard to escape. Except in this case, it doesn't even have to be living tissue. If this uh, interpretation was correct, it would be an example of autotomy, where what you're giving away is like dead former exoskeleton material that you is not even a living part of your body anymore.
1: Right, but it's, it's a perfect replica of your own anatomy because it used to be part of your own anatomy. So there is a, a this weird genius to it. However. Um, one of the, the counter arguments here is that this is already a pretty uh, well armored little caterpillar. I mean, it's a caterpillar, so you know it's not going to you know stand up against a Sherman tank or anything. But it's very bristly. It does not look like it does not invite you to touch it or stroke it with your finger. Mm-hmm. And likewise, it would potentially uh, be a problematic meal for uh, you know for, for just a, a casual predator. But uh, but the, the other question is, well, OK, what about other enemies? Uh, you know, clearly an, an insect in this world does not uh, uh, have to worry just about the birds. It also has to worry about uh, other invertebrate predators and also things like parasitic wasps. So Lowe from the University of Sydney investigated to just see how these uh, these caterpillars with or without hats would stack up against uh, some sort of an adversary essentially by conducting petri dish death matches uh, removing the head hats on some specimens leaving them on with others
0: so we've got bug fights for science here exactly
1: Uh, so Yong writes about this and says quote the bugs readily attacked trying to drive their stabbing mouth parts into the caterpillars heads in response the caterpillars thrashed curled up reared up and vomited those with hats use their stacks to deflect or absorb the bugs attacks leading to more protracted struggles okay that's pretty good and i love the imagery there of this just because i feel like it just really escalated there especially with the rearing up and vomiting
0: yeah i would say that's good fighting advice for anybody if you get into a scrap curl up rear up thrash and vomit and then use your own skulls from previous moltings to deflect your attacker <laughs> Now the interesting
1: thing though is that th- this sounds good and one would be tempted to stop reading there right and say so like all right well that's it that's what they're for but in the lab uh, experiments they found that the head hats didn't actually make a difference on survival rates hmm. the predatory bug gladiators they were up against still tended to win So PETA checked in the field and found the same thing, except uh, except that when they battled in groups, that seemed to make the difference. In groups, the hats doubled their chances of survival. And this was mainly by providing a false target for attackers. And in these cases, it seems like uh, the this, this skull hats give the caterpillars a slight advantage, but it's, uh, you know, it's not going to work against all predators, especially highly motivated
0: predators, but it will give them an advantage if they're fighting in groups. I, I think something that's often true about evolution is every little bit helps. Uh, even if something yeah. only provides a small advantage, it's often retained. Yeah, and the, the really wonderful part about this, like ultimately
1: the, the evolutionary genius of it, is that they're not producing, they're not expending resources to produce some sort of crazy shell or a toxic secretion or some sort of weird organic battle horn. They're simply making use of their own bodily leavings. They, they're, they're hanging on to an already necessary byproduct of their molting. They're just keeping it on top of their head. This is yeah. recycling. Yeah, it's essentially recycling. Uh, and and uh, they're, they're not alone. There are apparently several other species of caterpillar that do the same thing, and you'll find them in India, Japan, and Europe. So if you're in those areas and you ever find one of these caterpillars that seems to have this bizarre head formation or have some sort of weird hat, that's what you're looking at. Now, in terms of uh, human analogs for this, if we turn it back on humans, Uh, We don't really see anything like this uh, at all. I don't think we've ever seen a human build, say, a suit of armor out of their own nail
0: clippings. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to find... Another good example of an animal wearing a helmet that's not generated by its own body, and I I couldn't find anything exactly like that, but there are some interesting comparisons. So, of course, you already mentioned the hermit crab, um, but that's not a helmet. There is another thing that's not quite a helmet, but I did think was interesting. I was reading about the caddis fly, which is a widely distributed order of freshwater flies if you've ever seen a somebody go fly fishing, Robert, have you ever been fly fishing?
1: Uh, no, but I've 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 watched it, and it's really cool looking.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, the 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 hopping motion. I think apparently a, a lot of uh, fly fishing lures are designed on the basis of caddisflies because these are widespread freshwater flies. And in its larval stage, many species of caddisfly will create what are known as cases that they carry around with them. These are rigid, protective structures that they wear sort of like clothes. Most examples I've seen are roughly tube-shaped. They're made out of silk weaving that comes from the, from the larva itself, but then it's reinforced with external material like sand, rocks, plant matter, like wood or bark. Uh, Though it's not really a helmet. It seems like usually the head protrudes and the forelimbs are used to kind of drag the case around over the body while the larva is searching for food. So imagine like a tube made out of rocks or plant matter or something held together by silk with part of a little uh, fly larva sticking out the front of it and crawling around. It's pretty grim
1: looking. I don't know. It looks very... uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, it,
0: it's 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 not an elegant design. It looks a little bit trashy. Well, speaking of trashy, we're about to get even trashier because there are also a number of lacewing species that are known to decorate their bodies with various substances for defense against various predators, like ants and other things. Uh, for example, the larva of the green lacewing, where the uh, the scientific name is Melada desjardinsi. This one has an interesting adaptation. It covers its back with stuff, mostly, I think, <laughs> dead aphids and debris and uh, and then also secretions from its own body. And this forms, in a way, a type of defensive helmet, which protects it from attacks by one of its competitors and predators, the Asian lady beetle or Harmonia axiridus. So I, I think that the lady beetle and the lacewing are actually competing for some of the same prey that they might both be preying on aphids, but then also the lady beetle can prey on the lacewing larva.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of this, and it's uh, it's like some sort of weird insect necro armor. It's grizzly. Yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the Lord of Bones here. Uh, <laughs> so, so this is a helmet in a way. Again, it's not exactly covering the head, but eh. I don't know if you stretch the definition, it's a top down covering as the animal would be crawling along on a leaf, say, and you look down from above, it's top down part is covered by this mound of stuff it's sort of a body helmet made out of dead aphids and other junk and it's referred to at least by some researchers as a trash package (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i was looking at one paper it was published in applied entomology and zoology in 2006 by kingo nakahira and rio arakawa and this paper was experimenting on what are, what are the differences in survival when these, these larvae are attacked by ladybugs with trash and without trash. These were the experimental conditions. Or actually, I think it was naked and with trash. And it turns out if you are a lacewing larva and your options are naked or with trash, it's better to be with trash. <laughs> because the attacks on the ones with trash were fewer in number – and also, they were not as successful as quickly. I think there was a similar thing going on where the, the when they were attacked, they would survive longer if they had a trash package, sort of like what you were talking about with the Caterpillars. But it, it looks like there's a double function here. So the trash package... On this larva, it not only physically defends the body to some extent, it also discourages recognition of the lacewing larva as prey. Oh. And, and this mirrors the duality of some human helmets, doesn't it? Like, because some helmets, of course, have a practical purpose of shielding the head from physical blows, and then other helmets are largely about signaling. They're trying to create an idea or an impression in the, in the mind of the enemy or the subject.
1: Yeah, to create the idea of the fearsome warrior or the the warrior whose stature is larger than that of a normal human.
0: Right, or the warrior who has the attributes of some non-human animal. Yeah. So another interesting candidate for animal helmets – again, this isn't quite a helmet. It doesn't fully work, but it gets kind of close – is the idea of decorator crabs. And, Robert, I think you and Christian actually did an episode a long time ago where you talked about decorator crabs, if I'm not mistaken – but, uh, these are crabs that will mask their bodies by adding foreign material from their environment to their exoskeletons for various defensive and camouflage reasons. And one of the interesting things is often what they put on their bodies is not just like dead foreign materials, not just like rocks or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they will sometimes put sessile stinging organisms on their backs that will will play an active role in defense because if something comes down toward them, perhaps to prey on the crab, these things can actually sting it. Much in the way that if you were to run at an animal with horns, the horns could poke you. Yeah, I'd
1: forgotten all about these uh, these critters, but yeah, there's some w- fabulous uh, photographs of them because it's it's not you know it, it depends on what's available to them. Uh, like no one set of decorator crab bio armor is the same, mm-hmm. and it really ultimately is like oh, oh you know it ups the game, right? I mean humans don't. Uh, don't build armor that has some sort of living component that then attacks uh, people for you. Like, this is uh, this is something entirely from the, the the world of Decapod
0: wonder. That's a great idea, though. What if you were to make a, a suit of armor that included just your body was covered with king cobras? And if <laughs> <laughs> somebody gets too close, you know, they're out of luck. Yeah, well, you know, it might make...
1: Um functioning as a cohesive combat unit difficult as well though i don't know Uh, (laughs) but that's 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 something to consider in the history of helmets and we'll get into that in uh, our next section
0: all right well maybe we should take another break and then when we come back we can talk about helmets as an invention in human history today's episode is brought to you by ebay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential
2: Zumo play asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at let'smakerupplan.org
1: All right we're back. So the origins of body armor in general are lost to prehistory right? because ultimately they're tied up in the same movements that saw humans clothe themselves to begin with, because ultimately the line between body armor and clothing is very thin. For instance, if you're going bicycling and you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I might, I might fall off this bicycle. What are you going to wear? Are you going to wear um, a, a tiny pair of shorts or are you going to wear blue jeans?
0: Well, I'd say in the shorts, you have more mobility, but in the blue jeans, if you get into a wreck, you're less likely to scrape yourself up really bad. Yeah, there's certainly a trade-off there, But
1: but uh, and, and I don't know, maybe you're not supposed to wear blue jeans when you're riding bicycles. I don't know all the rules about bicycles, but- Right, you don't want your cuffs getting caught in the right, gear. Right, <laughs> there is the cuff thing. But blue jeans, in and of themselves- are a kind of body armor and function that way from time to time. I think we've all had situations where, you know, you drop something or it's a, you know, it's, I don't know, dinner knife, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes we we can catch our clothing behaving as body armor. And, uh, and so that's something to keep in mind when considering the history of people just— Taking up the hides of animals, taking up parts of part, you know, what is a thick hide, but also bodily protection. Taking the bodily protection of another organism and making it our own, protecting ourselves not only from uh, from the elements, but then ultimately from potential attacks.
0: Yeah, and this comes through in the fact that a lot of things that I think are reasonably thought of as armor aren't made out of rigid, hard material like plate metal or stone or bone or anything like that. I mean, a lot of things that I think could reasonably be thought of as armor are just made of leather. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like one of the the, the, the examples we're going to get to in a second comes down to essentially leather capes. And it's easy to just – to just dismiss a cape because uh, these days, because we think of a cape as being just purely something decorative, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, something Batman has a cape, and yeah, he can do some weird things with it, but it's we ultimately don't think
0: about it being an important part of his body armor. What is the utility of Darth Vader's cape in a lightsaber fight? I used to think about that. Like, wouldn't that get caught on stuff while you're running around swinging your arms at things? Well. I don't know specifically about Vader, but I think
1: in general, I know from the Clone Wars um, uh, era stuff, uh, the cloaks that are worn by Count Dooku and General Grievous are described to have like this kind of metamaterial armor inside. So they actually do function uh, as as additional armor against oh. uh, like blaster attacks. And may, I don't know if they're actually functional against lightsabers. I haven't gone that deep into... Uh, into the material. But I don't know, potentially uh, at any rate they, they uh, some of the material uh, regarding the Clone Wars does get into the idea that that uh, one of these high-tech capes is actually protective in nature.
0: So, unresolved question for you Wikipedia editors out there, fill us in. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: we, we've been spending a lot of time on Wikipedia in this household. Oh yeah. But uh, before we had high tech um, separatist uh, <laughs> um, capes to wear, you know, the, the first bits of hide or vegetation that ended up serving as some form of a cap or hat, these would have provided at least some protection from animal attack, human weapons or just general injury. Sooner or later, however, you would have certainly had the emergence of a cap or a helm that was designed primarily for body armor. Uh, Ultimately, though, one of the, the things about this is that in, since these were all inevitably made out of organic materials, items like these are just lost to history. Our only real knowledge of them comes from ancient depictions and ancient texts. Okay. So I was reading about this in, uh, in, in a text that I frequently turn to, uh, The Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World. And in this one, Brian M. Fagan uh, uh, collaborates with Thomas uh, Hulett, who's uh, an, an expert on on these matters. Uh, and points out that some of the earliest illustrations of body armor and of helmets dates back to the middle and third millennium BCE on the standard of Ur,
0: a Sumerian war panel. Ah, so this would include illustrations from the ancient world of what the warriors of the time looked like.
1: Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, heavy capes seem to be the body armor of choice. Uh, as depicted in in this uh, standard. And they also appear to be wearing helmets. Hmm. In fact, well-made metal helmets uh, uh, appear as early as 2500 BCE in Ur. Six of these were actually found on the heads of guards interred with their ruler. And these were very much like the ones depicted in the standard. And according to Hewlett and Fagan, were likely a metal upgrade of the same design traditionally used, um, um, composed entirely out of leather. Now, the metal caps here they would have made, they were made out of copper, and interestingly enough, no metal body armor was found uh, and Again, this is a, a burial pit providing uh, plenty of examples of metal artifacts, you know things that were like chariots and other artifacts of war that were going to go with the ruler into the afterlife so if they're if there' had been uh, metal body armor in use, uh, the argument is that we would see it here. But apparently, uh, the body armor technology had not reached that point yet. Like the first place we see metal uh, um, augmenting the
0: body is with the skull. That's really interesting. And I'm also just thinking about the fact that they were made of copper. I might be conceiving of this wrong, but okay. So I'm thinking you're, you're out in the desert marching with an army and you're wearing a copper helmet. Copper is a great conductor of heat and heats up really fast. Seems like under a desert sun that would get amazingly hot.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this gets into the idea again into the idea of when when is the helmet purely practical, and when is it all about the the look of the helmet, and when is it all about the the thing you become when you wear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually um, uh, uh, one of the, the the tombs from this time period, uh, the tomb of uh, Meskalamdug. Uh, gives us an example of a golden helmet that is uh, of the same style we're discussing here. And it's, <laughs> it's pretty interesting to me because it, it certainly it has the shape of the helmet, and we can see how this would go over an individual's head and provide some degree of protection. You also see that it there are little um, uh, regular um uh, perforated holes around the edge of it as if there were additional like leather tassels or some other kind of uh, uh, aspect to it that you know that, that involved um, organic material. But also, this helmet has
0: ears. Yeah, it almost reminds me of the Sutton Hoo helmet, which has like mm-hmm. a mustache on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, 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 when we were t- discussing the Sutton Hoo helmet, it, I would just, it reminded me of this. So with Sutton Hoo, there's a mustache. And here we have ears and also... Um, uh, it looks like hair. So it's it's really weird to imagine, like, the conversation that goes into the design of this helmet where a general or a king is putting in the request for the helmet. He gets the prototype back, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, where are the ears? Where is the mustache? I can't go out there looking like I don't have ears or a mustache.
0: Are you crazy?
1: This is war. <laughs>
0: that's very good. I, I I am I'm thinking about like what would call. I mean, so obviously this had to be difficult to produce at the time, right? I mean, it can't yeah. have been. It can't have been easy or cheap or a trivial investment of resources to make ears on these helmets. Why aren't these just the most basic utilitarian kind of domes you could imagine?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I, you know, obviously this is um, the the golden helmet was not for everybody right, here, yeah. but. Uh, uh, and, and certainly, it's about status. But we we see also status playing a key role in some of the earliest examples in the Greek traditions, a uh, tradition of helmets. So the the, the 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 history of Greek helmets is uh, is a fascinating area to look at because uh, it, for one, on one hand, there's just there's a lot of um, a lot of research and scholarship that has gone into, into looking at them, and we have some you know wonderful examples of them that uh, have survived either physically or in depictions. And uh, if we go back to the late Bronze Age of Mycenaean Greece, roughly, uh, this would have been roughly 1250 BCE, we encounter these um, these boar tusk helmets. And these were leather caps reinforced with slices of boar tusk. Wow. Uh, I, I recommend everyone look up a picture of this as well, because you, whatever you're picturing in your head is probably not quite... Uh, what the reality was like I was initially imagining some like weird tusk based uh, skeletal system but it's really you you really get the idea more of like I'm someone made an entire helmet out of these uh, these tusks and these uh, slices of tusks and it creates this uh, really an impressive looking helmet and apparently the impressive aspect of it would have been key Ah, uh, Tim Everson in Warfare in Ancient Greece points out that these tusk slices would have easily shattered on impact, so the di- design didn't actually afford much more protection. But it was better than nothing, and an improvement uh, over just mere leather or felt. And we also see the early um, uh, advancement of adding cheek guards as well. So uh, w- the the history of, of of helmet design is is um, is rife with examples of of add-ons and additions, and and uh, and the designers realizing, well, okay. We can protect the head, but we also need to protect the cheek. Or maybe we need something down the bridge of the nose to better protect the face. And then how about the exposed neck?
0: Yeah, it, uh, it looks like this helmet with the boar tusks, it's got sideburns, basically. I mean, they're yeah. just dangling down on the sides.
1: Yeah, big protective uh, side sideburns made out of boar tusk. And they say that horsehair crests were likely added as a motif to this as well. But uh, again, it probably wasn't entirely about protection, but more about signaling hunting excellence. Because apparently, you'd need to uh, you need about forty to fifty boars. Uh, to make one of these things, hmm. and so it, 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 in and it of itself, it signals that you are a mighty hunter, or perhaps that you know you are powerful enough that you command the resources that emerge from these hunts. Either way, uh, a, a, a certain signal is being put forth when you don this helmet on your head.
0: It's kind of it's like the deer head mounted on the wall, or the you know it's a it's a trophy as much as a practical protection,
1: right. And his bronze technology improved, bronze sheeting was used in these helmets as well, Uh, generally in spots at first. You know, you add a little bit of bronze plating here or there to make it fancier. Uh, But eventually this led to full bronze-plated helmets around the 8th century BCE. I I was reading about all this in an article by classical archaeologist and military historian Jesse Obert, and he points out that there there are really two helmets of note that immediately uh, come out of this in the 8th century BCE. So there's the... um, The Illyrian helmet, which covered the entire head, cheeks, and even part of the throat, and it was forged in two pieces. Uh, You can look up pictures of this. I find that it looks a lot like Magneto's helmet, uh, at Mm -hmm. at least the version that we see in some of the recent movies. So the face remains open, but it does cover a lot of the rest of the head. And then the other one is the Corinthian helmet, which was forged from a single piece of bronze covering the face with a long nose guard and two cheek guards. However, it leaves the neck vulnerable, and it was apparently known to be quite uncomfortable. It was heavy. It was uh, you know this big chunk of metal that goes on top of your head and weighs you down and then also
0: impacts vision and hearing. Yeah, this has been knocking around in my mind while we've been talking about this. That in helmet design, and I guess this is true Throughout the body, that you've got a, a trade-off between the level of protection offered, and then what costs come associated with that level of protection. In, throughout the body, I imagine it would be things like, uh, like weight, heat, uh, uh, you know, ease of movement. But around the head, I especially think of the limitation of the senses. Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is a major concern in helmet design. Uh, As far as the Corinthian helmet goes, uh, Obert writes, quote, the wearer was partially blinded and practically deaf when he wore the helmet. This has led some authors to speculate whether the popularity of the Corinthian helmet effectively postponed the invention of battlefield tactics as communication on the battlefield was almost certainly impossible. (laughs) That's an interesting idea. Yeah, like you you want. It's like go out there and kill boys, uh, but but no discussion while you're out there because nobody can hear a damn thing. Um, You know that would that would impact the way you carry out your battles and and how and to what extent you could even uh, have a flexible battle plan and. And, you know, there's that that famous saying that like all what all battle plans fail when the enemy is actually encountered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that would that would really limit what you could do, I would think. Yeah. And it also makes me think back to the ears, the ears on the Mesopotamian helmet. Yes. If you look at pictures of that, not only is there a motif of the ear, there appears to be an ear hole Yes. Uh, so in, in that tradition they had realized okay this looks great but I can't hear a damn thing out of this somebody cut some ear holes in my fake ears on my golden helmet. Yeah, I
0: wonder about both of those actually. So the holes possibly for hearing but also the rendering of the you know the external part of the ear. I wonder if that could almost be like painting eye spots on yourself.
1: Yeah. Letting, letting your fellow soldiers know that you can hear, or even enemies, like this this is a dangerous opponent because they can actually hear what's being said by others. They, they have enhanced sensors. They can hear me coming if I'm trying to sneak up uh, behind them. So, so I found that super interesting. I, I, for one, had never really thought that much about the, the impact of the senses uh, when wearing these helmets. I mean, to a certain extent, I guess— Thinking about like full plate mail military knights, you know, it becomes obvious when you look at something like that, that this is it's like wearing a diving suit and riding a horse into battle. You're going to have you're going you're to be more powerful in some respects, but uh, you're, there are going to be some severe constraints on what you can do and how you can take in the battlefield. Yeah, totally. Now, another aspect uh, to to this design was that they were also expensive. Uh, Eventually, cheek guards and uh, and a rear uh, were extended to rest on the shoulders, and this allowed the helmet to cover the neck and throat uh, a bit more, but also dissipate the helmet's weight. Um, Also of note, larger ear holes were added uh, eventually to allow battlefield communication, uh, which is sensible, right? Like if you can add up some holes there for the ears— you know, I, I guess you could look at them as stabbing holes if someone's really good at what they're doing. But, uh, but like, what's the trade-off? Do you want your ears absolutely protected and useless, or
0: do you want some holes there and actually be able to hear what other people are saying? Yeah, I guess it depends on what kind of combat you're thinking about. I mean, I imagine I'm not a combat historian or anything, but I imagine in a lot of archaic battle. There's a there's a, a huge amount of sort of like gross motion say the thrusting of large spears into groups of people, the swinging of swords and axes and a little hole on the ear might be less of a problem You're not really imagining somebody's going to come at you with a needle
1: right <laughs> Now, beginning in the 6th century BCE, the uh, Chalcidian helmet pops up, and this brings improved visibility and comfort while also providing protection. And we subsequently see the evolution of of various forms of helmets in the Greek tradition, Uh, the, uh, the Ionian helmet, the Attic helmet, and others. And these were all about tweaking defensive and or tactical aspects of the previous model. So just, you know, continuous tinkering with the design to figure out what offers the best protection, what is the most comfortable, what allows the individual to uh to utilize their senses on the battlefield all of these concerns and then also they they all have variant they all look cool i'll say that as well like there's a certain <laughs> coolness to the design so that's also inevitably part of the design evolution of these like you still want your warriors to look fearsome on the battlefield
0: right though i will say none of these examples were getting to look as cool as the uh, the leather helmets in planet of the vampires.
1: Uh, yes,
0: th- those are pretty good. Um,
1: yeah they they they, they essentially uh, what they they cover everything but the face.
0: Mhm. They're they very, don't... they're minimalist. They extend up from the Dracula collar of the space suit. Mhm. But they do get a lot of coverage there and from from just a pure
1: padding uh, standpoint, they seemed like they would probably do a good job. And I don't know. we, I don't know in that film if we actually get any kind of glimpse inside them or a, a feel for their structure, if they have some sort of
0: internal uh, skeleton applied as well. Uh, I don't recall. I think at some point, some of the characters take the hoods off, but uh, mm-hmm. that's about it. Now, of course, this is just
1: the the Greek tradition that we've alluded to here. There are other um, uh, lineages of helmets and body armor that we see in other parts of the world. Um, for instance, so we see scaled armor helms in China uh, during the Warring States period of 475 through 221 BCE, and and th- these are quite interesting. It, it keeps it's very much in keeping with the predominant body armor of the time as well. The idea of having, depending on this sort of scale male uh, approach to armoring the body and less uh, dependence on single large plates. Mm. And then um, uh, the Minoan civilization of Crete used a, a basic helmet style as early as um, 1400 BCE that would later, among other European designs such as those of the Celts, uh, influence the iconic shape of the Roman uh, Monteferino style helmet. And generally, these are, are conical with a raised central knob with neck guards and cheek plates.
0: Oh, okay. Now, with with this style of helmet, this is actually getting more into what you're going to see coming through into the modern age.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know pretty pretty straightforward uh, helmet with a bit of a bit of a, a cap, a bill at the front, uh, which would have, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, shaded the eyes a bit, but also protected the eyes. And then you have some cheek plates as well. But this is, this is generally when you see depictions of the Roman Republic, um, you, know, you know, centurions and whatnot, this is
0: generally what you see on their head. But not like the big horsehair adornments and stuff with all the, the, the fluff on top.
1: Uh, right. But, but like, you know, I guess the thing about any of these helmets is you can always add fluff to them if you want. Right. You can always doll it up a little bit. So thus far, wrapping it up here for this episode anyway, we've discussed, uh, you know, the basic idea of what a helmet is where that idea comes from, and to the extent to which we can really consider it a a, a human uh, phenomenon. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more to explore here, so I think we're going to come back in a second episode where we'll discuss some more unique helmets uh, from history, uh, perhaps some findings on just how effective some helmets have been. Uh, So just strap in, strap your helmet on, and stick with us. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can... Can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be, just make sure you leave uh, a review, uh, rate us with some stars,
0: and make sure you have subscribed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.